When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central. Only on PBS. Dave Hanratty and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 241 of the No Encore Music Podcast. Delicious. Delicious beer. Can was cracked. Myself. Why not? Craig Fitzpatrick, how you doing, man? I'm doing okay, dude. Um, how are you? I feel like I've got a bit of like jet lag from the hour going back or something. Don't know if you I feel the same. Do, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. The darkness. But it's time to open the scary door. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely Tis is. the season. Tis the season, yeah. It's going to be like roughly around Halloween when this comes out. So, no, Encore, of course, Heads of Podcast Network, your favourite music podcast in the world, I'm told. On this episode, Craig is correct, we will be getting spooky. We're doing our top five this week. It's top five scary songs, and we'll explain what that means beyond the basic title later on in the show. Before that, we'll be reviewing Bruce Springsteen. He's back with another album. May is that now? I don't know. I guess Craig knows. I'm sure we'll find it later. 36? Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> I don't know. Um, also, yeah, so this week we released a new No Popcorn episode, our movies and music offshoot, and it's uh, appropriately seasonal, I guess. The Crow, 1994 goth horror classic, The Crow. Do yeah. Any, uh, strong opinions on that one, Craig? I haven't seen The Crow, I'd say, in about 15 years, but I remember loving it. Maybe it's time for a revisit. You've been like wading through 
what is it, a horror film a day for the entire month? How, how's that been going for you? I've, I, I'm kind of in the home stretch now. So we're recording this on the Thursday. It's the 29th. So I've got yeah. three days left. And luckily, I'm unemployed. So, uh, however, it's a case of I have fallen behind a bit. I have to maybe do some double bills. I watched The Thing this afternoon. That's just oh. a five star classic right there. Kurt Russell. It's in my top two. Horror the th- films? The thing, the thing and The Exorcist are my top two. They're very obvious, but they're just my face. Okay, yeah. So I guess like staring in the barrel of what I got in front of me, I got to get like, I got to get Japanese Ring in there. I got to get Texas Chainsaw Massacre original, Halloween original, The Lighthouse, that Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe movie. I think I'm down to like four, maybe, possibly. I also watched Does that count as horror? Get Out, or no, Get Out, sorry, The Lighthouse. I don't know, I'm told it does, but I haven't seen it. Anyway, look, listen, the yeah, point I haven't is... Seen it either. The point is, the latest episode of No Popcorn, The Crow, was a lot of fun, and it was edited by David Tapley of Tandem Felix fame, so I want to say a huge thank you to him, because, in fairness, October's been fucking crazy for this show. Like, this episode, like this very episode that you're listening to now, um, I didn't realise this, but between the regular show, No Popcorn, and also our track-by-track episodes that we put out this month, this is our 10th show in October, which is fucking crazy. Um, that is and some turnaround. Yeah, it's and like that turnaround, I mean, like like I say, Tapley helped us out, Dahi helped us out, but obviously Adam, the man, Shanahan, has been incredibly imperious throughout and incredibly patient with me and all of my crazy demands. Uh, the track by track episodes in particular were a lot of work, so I know that people have really enjoyed them, and that's great. Um, yes. Not every month we'll have 10 episodes, unless Craig goes off and does his jazz Steely Dan shoot podcast offshoot Odyssey. Don't tempt me. <laughs> But I guess what I would say is, you know, if you've enjoyed all of this work and you do like the show and you got a few quid spare on that pint you're not going to be buying, feel free to hit up patreon.com slash noencore if you'd like to help to support the show. As I say, price of a pint, you know, and I guess plus VAT. I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends where you go. You know, in Dublin, some pints can be what, like north of seven euro, eight euro? It's, it's like, yeah, it's we're better call. value than Dublin pubs. That I should be our so. new tagline. Yeah, I mean, you got to ask yourself the question, right? Is no encore more satisfying than an overpriced watered down pint served to you by some guy with an attitude and telling you you got to get out of the pub after ninety minutes? But now he can't even tell you nothing because there's no fucking pubs open. All I'm saying is, we worked our asses off this month. I'm absolutely delighted with the show. I think we're fucking killing it. So you know, if you want to, if you want to support us, support us. Craig, how do you feel about that? Dave for president. I'm not going that far. I was about to say here, here, but. Um, although considering some people that have been running for president lately, you couldn't do much worse, dude. <laughs> Is that a ringing endorsement? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll there's been an amazing amount of shows, great quality, great chats. And yeah, price of a pint. Like a lot of people do say the show is kind of like hanging with your mates in the pub. Um, so, you know, get involved. We're just as intoxicating and not watered why, down. Why do you think I cracked <laughs> open a can there of a sour beer? It's pretty good. I'm enjoying it. So here's the thing, right? Um, are you going to stay up for the US election? I believe that's in the next few days. Tuesday night, I think. Yeah, I, I will not be staying up. <laughs> that sounds grimmer than any Asian horror film uh, I could stumble across. No, I don't, I don't think so. Are you going to get involved? It doesn't oh, yeah, seem the, like a very... The, the entire house. This is the plan. Oh, uh, of course. Okay, it's yeah. It's a house of journalists, But you Craig. live with news people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's, the plan is we're all staying up, I believe. Uh, so that's going to be fun. But uh, the reason I mentioned the US election, this is not, you know, you, you don't come to No Encore for that. You come to it for music. But it should be noted that like things are hotting up all over the world, particularly in the States, where uh, the Trump administration administration have made a bunch of kind of politically motivated changes to a planned 250 million dollar 
advertising campaign that was intended to, quote, defeat, despair and inspire hope amidst the sweeping coronavirus pandemic over there. Um, This campaign was set to feature various celebrities. Now, according to the Washington Post, just today, actually reading it, um, Trump's Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, Michael Caputo, proposed instead that a theme for the ad should be helping the president help the country. And in order to do this, they wanted to have a bunch of celebrities speak for them. But they actually had a big veto list of who they would not involve. And one of the people on the list was Billie Eilish, who is deemed to be an enemy of the state. Uh, The quote here says that she is destroying our country and everything we care about. The administration also refused to allow other musicians like Jennifer Lopez, Christina Aguilera, Adam Levine of Maroon 5 fame, and Justin Timberlake to participate. Now, I don't know if this comes down to a taste thing, but what do you think? Well, I mean, those names, yeah, fair enough, maybe. But Justin Timberlake, isn't he like a man of the woods? <laughs> You'll find a lot of Trump supporters in them their woods, I think. Um, I just find it baffling that they had a veto. They started with a veto list because we know that there's like such a slim, slim pickings in terms of Trump supporters. You think they would have just like called the four celebrities they actually know support him and like get it over and done with like ted nugent or they actually (laughs) they actually approved uh 10 celebrities for the psa ultimately actor dennis quaid dennis quaid hmm has dennis quaid why do i feel like dennis quaid is now making like hallmark films that are about jesus is has he gone quite republican i'm just guessing at that but i feel like that's true (laughs) it probably is i know he had a film in the last couple of years called like the neighbor or something in which he plays a guy who's basically a MAGA hat-wearing guy who, like, a black couple move into his house and he's like, hey, I'm just your friendly neighbour, I'm just coming over to see everything's alright. And, of course, he ends up, like, stalking them. It looks like a trash classic. I didn't get to see it. I forget what it's called. But in that film, he's clearly playing, like, a fucking psycho Trump guy. And I guess not too far removed from real life. Allegedly. Please don't sue us. I always thought his brother was the more kind of uh, headline-grabbing one. Oh, Randy. Randy's incredible. I'm surprised Dennis made the list having a brother like Randy. Didn't Randy have to move to Canada because he thought, like, the FBI were after him? (laughs) I think that was the uh, infamous Star Whackers thing, wasn't it? Him and his wife were on the list for quite some time. Um, Who else is on this list, Craig? There's some interesting mixes here. Billy Ray Cyrus, I see. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of par for the course. Garth Brooks as well, for for sure. Um, oh my God, the last name. I'm just seeing this now. Oh no. Enrique. My boy Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> oh, no. oh my God. Hold on. What? That wow. is not rhythmically divine. It's rhythmically undivine, Are we I have- suggest. Hold on. What has he done? <laughs> is there like some, <laughs> is he just vanilla enough to like make it onto the list or is he, is he like sporting the cap? Is I'm he gonna, going on the cancelled list? I'm Don't do this to me, Dave. I'm going to leave this to you to investigate <laughs> over the next seven days as we as we rock oh into November. And you can see if your hero, Enrique Iglesias, has in fact betrayed you utterly. But yeah, going after Billie Eilish, man. Come on. All she does is put out great music. She's a good role model. Piss off, Trump administration. I, I'd say it was a, she thought it was like a real kind of feather in her cap, right? Like that's got it. She's, she's got ringing endorsements from loads of musicians. Like Tom York was like, yeah, she's the only real pop star around. No one's telling her what to do. This is way better. She's actually a danger to America. That's what like every pop or rock star wants, right? That's it's all quite dream. Tame, yeah. It's all quite tame by comparison to the days of Marilyn Manson, you know, like it's a different time. And I guess, yeah, if, if the current president is coming after you for being a force for good, it can only be a good thing. I guess she's scarier because she's a woman. She's just a normal woman, which is infinitely more terrifying than a, a guy dressed up a bit. 
Well, you know, it's been a terrifying thing, allegedly, or pos- supposedly, or factually correct, I suppose, based on the recent report in terms of Irish radio and the gender disparity yeah. thereof. We talked about this a few months ago, I think it was, when the first report came out. We spoke to Anya Tyrrell on the show and talked about, you know, this new push, this campaign for radio stations across the country to essentially kind of, you know, kick themselves up the hole a bit and just be like, okay, it's time to fucking have some parity here because... The stats were quite damning, if you recall, in terms of male musicians versus female musicians being played on the air. Um, according to a report this week, an update, which uh, I was reading Tony Clayton Lee's piece in the Irish Times, more music by Irish female artists is now being played in radio stations across the country. Um, it has improved. It is going up, but it's still not necessarily fully there. But yeah, the yeah. follow-up essentially uh, says there has been, quote, a substantial and groundbreaking rise in the playlisting of women. RT Radio 1 maintains its gender parity playlist, while RT 2 FM is now 45% gender parity, which is an increase for them of 35%. Yeah, that the was other huge. broadcaster, JFM, stands at 10% gender parity, which is an increase of 5%, so they got some catch Not so huge. To do as well. Yeah, um, there has been a good response to it, which is good. Um, there's still, of course automatically you see some of the comments and it's what you would expect but uh linda coogan who's uh, one of the people working on this report has come out and said that you know stations are kind of getting a bit closer in line with each other um i think the uk is failing considerably by comparison and it's yeah it's going to run and run i mean like to be fair to the people behind this report they're working overtime for it to be a thing and i suppose it's good that you know three four five months on or whatever it is it's still in the conversation because it is kind of one of those things that like could predictably slip away but i guess you know the, the harder you push maybe the more people will listen and there have been some changes so it's good news you know? yeah totally really good news just have to keep talking about it, i suppose and yeah england or britain not doing so well whatsoever bbc radio one is at 85 percent male currently which is absolutely shocking and then they list the commercial like mainstream radio stations which i won't go into the figures but they include the likes of absolute and radio x um definitely not doing so well you Rocks love Radio played X. Out, dog. You love Radio X, man. It's, your it, it's the best, yeah. It's like, it's, you're guaranteed to get like a, a shot in the arm of uh, aggressive Britpop at whatever time of the day you choose to tune in. Yeah, but a no, bit of Noli G. A lot of work to be done, as we know. Um, and you, yeah, so I guess it's a good news, bad news situation. Um, some bad news, but you know, I guess something that you can kind of look back on an amazing career and celebrate that. Uh, the death of Viola Smith, trailblazer and drummer, once heralded as, quote, the fastest girl drummer in the world, passed away at 107 years of age, which is pretty fucking incredible, to be fair. Um, her, like her CV, you know, her, her, her bibliography, whatever, her, like the entire thing. If you read anything about this woman, it's just, you know, she's a fucking pioneer. She was just like... Uh, someone who grew up in a musical household and essentially kind of just followed that path, but really kind of pioneered things and really kind of like, you know, she was considered the first female professional drummer. She studied under Radio City Music Hall, uh, drummer Billy Gladstone, gained recognition there and has been, you know, a huge influence on an awful lot of people in the world. Um, she worked with Ella Fitzgerald, yeah. Chick Webb, Bob Hope, many others, performed with the NBC Symphony Orchestra and the Ed Sullivan Show. And yeah, I mean, 107 years of age. It's quite the thing. It's quite scary. 107. I don't know. Like, like I just feel like it's, there's something kind of just bizarre about that number. Once you get into those, I know, you, you almost get a nosebleed from the altitude of like, I wonder if you're 107, you turn around and go, I'm 107. What is happening? I feel like, you know, Roadrunner going, like Wiley Coyote going over the edge of the cliff. You're kind of like, just keep running. Um, but yeah, I love the story about how she ended up on drums, which was her, her father um, was a musician as well. 
and they had like she just had a, a house full of girls so there was five girls ahead of her in the family and they had like all the rest of the instruments so basically the dad put together like a girl group and by the time she arrived which was, which was like the sixth edition her dad was just like okay i guess there should be a drummer so that's how she got them but um yeah really visible like you know appearing on the likes of the ed sullivan show i'm sure around about that time just utterly groundbreaking in the states and a real case of like so talented uh a pioneer uh i guess it's that case of like you know you have to be exceptional you have to almost be a bit of an oddity in terms of your talent to break down those barriers like it reminds me of um you know sister rosetta tarp who was just an incredible guitarist and she she did a lot she was kind of called the, the godmother of rock and roll but she was a great blues guitarist 30s and 40s but like she was only visible because she was exceptional. Um, you know, all of her male counterparts were slightly lesser. And yes, there was a lot more of them. So again, it comes back to just getting that balance right. Yeah. And listen, it was an especially potent reminder on a weekend in which maybe some people needed it about the power of women musicians, particularly women drummers. You talk about getting the balance right. Listen, we're not going to get too into the weeds on this one, but for anyone who is paying attention, I guess, especially via social media to happenings in the Irish music scene last weekend, may or may not have been aware of a podcast that I guess I wasn't aware of before. I don't think you were either. Me but neither, it no. kind of became Drummer in Dublin. A drummer in Dublin, yeah. It became WhatsApp-friendly kind of news over the weekend for all the wrong reasons. There was a guest on their show uh, who spoke absolutely reprehensibly about women, about women musicians. Uh, His comments were, as our own sonic architect Adam himself put it so well at the weekend on his own Instagram story when he talked about it, uh, the jaded views of a sexist. There's no kind of other really way of dressing it up or saying that it wasn't just disgusting commentary. I feel like, you know, anyone who's aware of this story will have had an automatic opinion similar to ours. And, you know, it's kind of one of the things that you feel like goes without saying, but then you hear stuff like this and you're like, I feel like maybe it should be worth just underlining and stressing that um, it's it was just really toxic commentary that doesn't do anybody any good. I know that there was an absolute, like, boatload of kind of reaction to it. And I feel like an awful lot of people, particularly women musicians in the Irish music industry, uh, said very, very eloquent things, very, very well-tempered mm-hmm. things. Um, you know, they're like, what can myself and Craig really add to this, essentially, beyond to say, go follow them and see what they have to say. But at the same time, you know, I would hope a line can be drawn under this. I know that the guys involved in the podcast have issued a full and frank apology. You'd hope that they're sincere. Uh, as I say, the comments are absolutely disgusting and disgraceful and in no way, you know, reflective of what should be and what you want to be, a very inclusive scene. Um, I don't really know what more we can say about it. I don't really want to get into a no, analysis about it, but I just think it was, it's probably worth just flagging up that like, as Adam also did say, if, you know, if you are a guy who heard those comments and weren't disgusted by them, you probably do need to fucking have a word with yourself, essentially. Yeah, uh, well said. And yeah, we just wanted to show a bit of solidarity. And um, the apology was lengthy and it covered a lot. And hopefully that is like a learning experience. But I guess my takeaway was just like the initial comment was that this podcast just goes up. It's, you know, free flowing. It's it's unedited. It's just, you know, the way people chat in bars or as we, as we were saying about ourselves earlier on. And more so than just that particular incident, it does kind of illuminate that, you know, when people aren't watching themselves or editing themselves, just having those free-flowing conversations around Dublin and the rest of the country, this kind of stuff is still out there. So, you know, we need to get beyond that point for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, hopefully a learning experience for those involved. Obviously, comments that never should have aired and are disappointing to hear. Um, and to be fair, you know, it allowed people to have a bit of fun with the idea of, as we, Craig, we, we know well on No Encore. We are, of course, two cis white men who host a podcast and, you know, fair enough, like fucking nail us to the wall and people did because of course our old friend Billy McFarland of uh, Fire Festival fame who's in prison these days uh, there was a story that went around kind of around this time as well and again like it was just this perfect storm um, he was placed in solitary confinement last weekend because he started a podcast which of course led to <laughs> everyone making the same joke and you go on you can make it again it's very funny yes the only suitable punishment for any bloke who decides to start a podcast and in fairness how can I possibly rebel against that in the current uh, thing that we just talked about a moment ago. But nonetheless, you'd like to think that here at No Encore, we're not quite as terrible as as, as young Billy McFarland. I'm really tempted to go back and watch that documentary again. Have you seen it more than once? No, I've seen it. I've seen it once. I'm, uh, I was very intrigued by, you know, the rest of the stuff that was going to come out around it and the book he was writing. And But it's also cynical. And he's obviously a total charlatan who's now just milking this for all it's worth and not that that even needs to be said so I'm kind of there's a part of me that's tired of it and just wants it all to go away that said as I said to you Dave Dumpster Fire is a very good podcast name <laughs> he won me back a little bit with that one but uh yeah good old Billy um none more cis male I guess than Billy McFarland okay we'll speed right past him and let's catch up with Luke from the Kooks Luke oh Pritchard, I stand corrected <laughs> <laughs> You may recall uh, a wonderful interview with Simon Amstel and the Kooks on Pop World on T4 about 15 years ago, probably at this stage. Yeah. Um, if anyone hasn't seen that interview, Craig, can you sum it up for us, please? Car crash. Um, Simon Amstel prodding uh, the particulars of Luke's relationship with a young Katie Malua at the time and Luke having no sense of humour whatsoever. And hilarity slash cringe ensued. It sure fucking did. And yeah, it's it's worth looking up on YouTube. On the yeah. old YouTube, that's where you can find these clips. Um, the reason we mention young Luke is he got married. Congratulations. Um, he got married to a, a woman by the name of Ellie Rose. And according to this report from The Metro, everyone's favorite music bible, they found a quote-unquote kooky way to hit back at critics of their 11-year age gap. They're releasing, quote, the ultimate fuck you track. The Kooks frontman and his singer-songwriter wife are using their record, Don't Judge, to hit back at those who judge them harshly for hooking up. Um, Luke Pritchard yeah. is 35, by the way, and his wife is, I think, 23. So, like, it's or 24 yeah, eleven that, year age gap. I think yeah, I think they like, met uh, when she was twenty. I mean grown right, yeah. adults and all that. Yeah, I mean I'm not he's, here to like, He's a lot more life experience. I know. You can get into the weeds about this kind of stuff. I will just say, like, if do. you want to if you want to make a really strong argument against it, maybe don't title the song like something that could easily be an R. Kelly song. Don't judge. Like it's a real like, Oh Jesus. <laughs> I'm not saying um, they're in that territory whatsoever, of course, but just it gives off weird vibes, man, doesn't it? Dodgy orange yeah. vibes. A little bit, yeah. So this this lady, Ellie Rose, said that um, she'd been attacked for her reputation. She said that when uh, the pair first met, that we had a bit of an age gap, a bit of drama. I was 20. I wasn't that young, though. I think it was more the dynamic. Luke concurred. We got a bit of a tough time. There were a few friends. The song is quite sensual. Ellie wants to oh, make a God. bit of a statement. People are just waiting to hate. We live in that world where we are waiting for someone to say something, which is a really fucked up thing. People will judge you anyway. Ellie has no qualms about airing their dirty laundry on the EP. There is something quite sexy about being vulnerable, she says. People are so ready to put you on the chopping block. It's like, put yourself there first. Now, here's the thing, right? 
this is so sexy about being vulnerable (laughs) (laughs) sorry go on straw man right because like this is like no one has actually really come out and paid attention to this they're like this for all the haters i like this there aren't any haters no one gives a shit like there never were I mean, you know, you work in advertising. You must be, you must be ad- admiring this campaign because it's. I guess it's working. Here we are talking about it, but nothing. Yeah, has, there hasn't been anyone to be like, this is a disgrace. <laughs> like, I agree, but also, how dare you <laughs> paint me as someone so cynical? Um, I hadn't thought that way, but yeah, of course. I mean, that's the way the world now, isn't it? You, you just write a news article, article about people being outraged and have like two Twitter comments from people with like loads of numbers after their name. Um, so yeah. Uh, I will not be listening to it. Luke Pritchard, uh, he always gave me skeezy vibes. I don't know why. Just because he was like the definite, he was the face of Landfill Indie, right? Just in the cardigan, clearly writing those songs just to get girls' attention. Like, uh, that was the vibe he totally gave off. And you forget how massive they were and still continue to do well. I mean, when touring is a thing, they, you know, do the kind of nostalgia circuit quite well. But um, when we did our favourite, like our top five live performances um, episode recently, I was looking at old like Blogotech clips. Do you remember there used to be those like takeaway shows in France where you'd have different indie types just doing kind of performances around the streets of Paris and all that kind of stuff. So you'd have like a million views for like Sufjan. Uh, you'd have a million views for Beirut. The Kooks one had like some insane amount of views, like 20 million. It was about 10 times bigger than anything else. And I was just like, oh my Fucking God, yes. Hell. They were massive. A dark time in musical history. It was, yeah. And listen, to be fair, you call them the face of Landfill India. I feel like you call them the, the unfettered curls of Landfill India, the For sure. uh, sad boy pout of Landfill India, the terrible lyricism of Landfill India. Congratulations on his marriage. I don't think the age gap is that severe, but look, no. who am I to judge? Uh, that's mostly the news for this week. Before we go, though, into our album review, I do want to take time just to kind of shout out a very, very worthy cause. Uh, really, really good friend of mine, really, really good friend of the show, uh, Sean Arthur, who makes music under the name of Kabina, Irish producer Kabina. He's based in Am- Amsterdam. Um, he put up an incredibly personal project on his band camp this week. Um, it's for his one-year-old niece, Nora, who unfortunately has been diagnosed with a rare terminal cancer. Uh, Kabina has put together this compilation um, featuring lots of different artists, including Jape, Merle, Fears, Moving Still and many more. And it's kind of a pay-what-you-want thing. All of the proceeds to it will go to Evine's Pink Tie, which is a charity which has supported Kabina's family throughout this current stage of their lives. Um, just to quote from him real quick, you know, he said, although Nora's time with us will be short, she continues to be the embodiment of joy and love to us all. Her love of music has been evident since early on, and I wanted to celebrate her in the only way that I know how. And here's the thing about Sean, um, like, I mean, that the press release doesn't tell you. He's an extremely compassionate and very, very lovely human being. He's been an incredibly good friend to me whenever I've needed him, and I hope vice versa. Uh, he's a he's he wouldn't you know he wouldn't go looking for anything off anybody. He wouldn't be fucking you know shouting about anything about his own music as as much as he, yeah. you know would hopefully be shouting about this current project because obviously it's a, a highly unfortunate situation. I, I sent him a voice note yesterday, and I just said, "Look, listen, I was like, I'm very proud of you, and I hope that um." You know, like, like, I mean, like the circumstances are obviously horrendous, but I'm, I'm really proud of what you pulled together, and I am, and I think that like it's an incredible thing to, to try and create something celebratory to a degree, um, about a very, very awful situation, and show that compassion that I mentioned that Sean is all about. So, if you are interested in hearing the music, if you are interested in supporting this, this project and this charity, if you head over to kabina.bandcamp.com 
And like I say, it's a pay what you want thing. I'm sure Sean would appreciate any attention whatsoever, but you know, obviously no pressure to do so. But I just, yeah, I wanted to mention that because like I say, he's a very good friend of mine and I think that this is a really important thing. So uh, I apologize for the jarring shift in tone, but you no, know, it, it, here we are. No, um, I'm glad you called it out. And yeah, great friend of the show, a great guy, an amazing musician. And also Dave, when you say, you know, he wouldn't be the type of artist to go looking for attention. It's even like beyond that where he's talked openly recently about he's creating this kind of great stuff, but he doesn't want to put himself out out there and he's being kind of quite disheartened with it. So I can only imagine it must have taken a lot of kind of bravery and just energy on his part to be like, okay, I'm going to put myself in the spotlight. I'm going to pull this thing together. Uh, it's a huge effort for an amazing cause. And yeah, um, guys, if you can support it, that would be great. So cobina.bandcamp.com. I'll be heading over there after the show as well. Tremendous. And if you are looking for other podcasts to listen to, of course, along with all this great music that you're going to get in return, the Heads of Podcast Network, of course, has lots and lots of things available for you. We don't have a vaccine just yet, Craig, for this whole COVID situation that we find ourselves in. Well, Dave, I've got a little surprise for you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I I said I've been working really hard lately, (laughs) I think I've cracked it. (laughs) I'm so happy. In the meantime, uh, check out this podcast. It's called The Behavioural Vaccine. That was my link, and this is the best you're going to get from me today. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Porig, and we host The Behavioural Vaccine Podcast. We're behavioural scientists who met through improv comedy. And so each week, we bring the two things together to explore how behavioural science can be applied, but in a fun way. There's a little bit of research. There's a good bit of messing. And there's loads of practical tips on everything from how to save money to how to maintain your friendships. Think about this like a behavioural vaccine to get you through winter 2020. Go on, sure, give us a listen. Terrific stuff. Okay, right, listen, it's time for an album review. It's time for a hot young newcomer um, by the name of <laughs> by the name of Bruce Springsteen. And here to tell us more in a moment will be Craig Fitzpatrick. But first... Let's have a listen to what Bruce is up to, shall we? The album's called Letter to You. The song, helpfully enough, is called Letter to You. And you can probably guess what it's about. studio album 71 years of age Craig it sounds to me like this wounded troubadour has a lot to say but who is he? (laughs) Oh are we really doing the who is Bruce Springsteen thing? Am I doing this? Yeah why not? I want to see how well come on surely you've got something in your back pocket here man it's Bruce Springsteen Yeah (laughs) who did I refer to recently like ironically as New Jersey's finest I think it might have been John Bon Jovi with that Bono story um, but of course, it was ironic, not just because it was John Bon Jovi, but because indisputably, Bruce Springsteen is New Jersey's finest. He's um, an American icon. He's also like quintessentially Jersey, I guess, because he's remained so close to his roots, his blue collar sentiments. 
and remained fairly faithful to uh, the world's greatest ever bar band, the E Street Band. Uh, bar like the odds, I think 18 year break was uh, at one point, but you know, the the gang is back together here. The love affair is back on. They're um, renewing their vows. They're pretending they're strangers hooking up in a bar. I don't know, whatever you're into. But um, this is coming in pretty quick succession from his last record, um, Western Stars, which we reviewed last year. And so I'm kind of changing it up. So he'd done like the Broadway stuff. He'd written his memoir, which is quite revealing about his mental health struggles. And the songs on Western Stars were actually kind of these little vignettes and character studies, but they were all about his kind of psyche, really. It was quite cleverly done. And to do it, he um, kind of put the band to one side for an album, um, leaned on the strings and some of his influences, like likes of Glenn Campbell, Roy Orbison, I think it kind of worked wonderfully. We were um, pretty positive about the record on this show. Um, And I think it kind of refreshed him and like brought him back to, okay, here's uh, who I am. Uh, I don't have to fight against what I've done. Um, And maybe it's time to like properly get the old band back together because, you know, they've been playing on his records um, for a lot of this century. But apparently this is the first time the whole band has been in one studio, I think it was his home studio. Um, everything was recorded in the room as it was happening. I think it was laid down in five days. And as like a long time fan, it sounds like it sounds as close to those 70 albums, like, you know, Darkness on the Edge Town, uh, The River, which I think might have been 1980. But like since The River, he's been almost kicking against the E Street Band sound, which can become a kind of caricature. And here he's just like opening the door again and saying, okay, I'm going to embrace it. And for me, I think that works. Um, Dave, how did it work for you? I mean, we, we discoed our hearts out uh, a few weeks back. How did you find this return to a very different aspect of the 70s? Well, as a WWE announcer, Michael Cole might say, it's boss time. And I feel like ultimately that should have been my intro. I'm really annoyed that it wasn't my intro, so I had to just crowbar it in. Um, here's the thing. I mean, like, uh, did I enjoy this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. But like, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to suggest this. I had this thought earlier on when I was out walking in the cold, leaves falling down, seeing young lovers walk by and wondering what Bruce Springsteen might make of it all. And I thought... Oh, Bruce Springsteen is just his own fucking genre, isn't he? I mean, I'm sure yeah. lots of other um, music critics have said this, probably in the pages of Rolling Stone and elsewhere. But Jesus Christ, like, it is so singular, almost in a way. Yeah, it's good old-fashioned heartland rock and roll, but it's Bruce doing it, and therefore it's Bruce doing it, and therefore it's just Bruce doing it, if you can follow my thread there. Uh, because, you know, he's so fucking singular, right? And yet he's that really comforting, familiar, warm blanket. I have to imagine that, like, the fans are over the moon when they get an album like this because it sounds like precisely what you think a Bruce Springsteen album would sound like, and I guess that's fine. Uh, the opening track is a bit of an outlier. It's called One Minute You're Here. It's just under three minutes, and it's fucking beautiful. Did a real number on yeah. my heart, let me tell you. Very rootsy, like, oh. very bare. Almost feels like something that could have been on Western Stars. Um, and then I'm like, oh, okay, maybe we're getting that more kind of introspective thing. Even the cover of this, he's kind of standing out in the snow or something. Um, but then... It does get very familiar quite quickly. Letter to you there, which is what you heard. And that just kind of signals the uh, the tone. Uh, big drums, big fucking, you know, passionate piano strikes, you know, and 
Bruce doing his Bruce thing. Um, I I don't know if it's in. It might actually it might be in the first track. I did see some people joking about this that like it only takes about five seconds before he's talking about a train hitting the outskirts of town. There's lots of personifications here. Lots of you know Jennies and Marys and Janies and and Billies and you know Bobbies and all that kind of stuff. And it's like yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, and this isn't necessarily me, like, about to wind up for some criticism, but do you feel like he gets away with it? Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm not sure. In I, general. I'm not sure. I agree with the question, just because <laughs> I agree with something you said previously, where because he is his own genre, he like made this sound. He's kind of earned it, right? If this was a set of songs that was, you know, released by the Hold Steady, I would not be impressed. But particularly when you have the, you know, remaining members of the E Street Band in the room and, um, you know, they're talking about how every time they've done a record since like the 80s, Bruce has been like, make it a little less E Street or he's done his own since or he's kind of, you know, overworked the arrangements before bringing it to the band. This time he was like turning to them and being like, yeah, just amp up the E Street a little bit and like actually letting them arrange things and like add their own parts. And so... I think while while it does kind of sound, you know, on first blush, like every Bruce album, actually, I think a lot of the more recent albums sounded like impressions of his previous work. He had kind of, you know, more modern producers just doing very slick, um, kind of brashly mastered as well, uh, attempts at that sound, whilst also kind of hedging their bets with, with some more modern touches there's been like good songs and I'm, I'm kind of discounting Western stars because that was his own thing, but there's been good stars, good songs throughout the last, you know, decade or so, or the potential for good songs that have been failed in the execution. And I think what you have here is a set of songs that are greater uh, than the, the parts, you know, overall, I just think them in a room, it conjures up some kind of magic that they haven't tapped into in a long time. And what I, what I came away feeling was that it wasn't Bruce Springsteen going, okay, we need to recapture that magic. It was like he was just going, okay, we're going to just let it loose. Just kind of, it's always been there. It's like this latent thing. It's being kind of dormant, but very close to the surface. And he just slipped into the most natural thing for himself and those players. And because of that, it feels way more vital than a lot of the band's kind of, you know, work over the last 20 years or so. So, you know, some of these songs... (laughs) Are actually go back to the early 70s and maybe the more interesting ones as well which I, I think you could probably that might be damning for some people like a song like Song for Orphans I think was written before his debut album and it's like this weird like Dylan-esque kind of just flight of fancy um, there's a lot of like heavy imagery there it's kind of fascinating and uh, it's something he hasn't done in a long while um, not since the early 70s but you know a while and yeah, that just sounds like alive. It doesn't sound like it's from the early 70s. Same with Janie Needs a Shooter. And I think next to the newer songs, it just forms this beautiful Bruce hole for me. So, okay, I guess on you made a playlist during the week for patrons on our Patreon page. Yeah. Patreon.com slash noencore if you want to check that out. And I know that you... Um, I asked you to do like a Bruce Essentials and you you, you, end, you ended off kind of spinning off and doing like a non-Born to Run, I guess, Essentials. <laughs> yeah, um, I wasn't including any Born to Run songs initially and then I was like, that's way too contrary. So I, I, <laughs> my, th- my thinking became if people are going to sacrifice like two hours to like getting into Bruce, Born to Run's 40 minutes, I'll do like a 120 playlist. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, well, look, I guess I, I had this feeling like we don't really talk about Bruce Springsteen, you and I. Like, I can't, like, unless we're reviewing him, I suppose, you know, like, I mean, very so true, yeah. But I had this feeling. I was like, I bet I can WhatsApp Craig now and ask him to do this playlist and he'll be able to do it. Um, so, what are, like, how do you rate him? I mean, like, what do you think of his overall standing in the pantheon of rock and roll? And, you know, is he is he the icon that he's made up to be? Is he a humble dude that you like? Is he a control freak, based on some of the stuff you're saying about the E Street Band getting to do things this time? How do you think legacy will define him? He seems, I mean, on a personal level, we can never really know, but from everything I've read, he seems like a very, very humble dude. Um, kind of unerringly so, given his iconic status. I was reading the, of course, Rolling Stone profile on him um, last week, and the interviewer was saying, like, right at the top, just it's kind of jarring to stand next to him because it's like one of the heads on Mount Rushmore just, like, chatting with you, which is kind of... Like, even reviewing one of his albums is a bit like trying to, like, dissect the 4th of July or something as a concept. Um, But I think... Yeah, he's iconic. He's not Dylan, right? Because Dylan has this elusive thing. He was a trailblazer. Bruce is way more like a traditionalist, even from the get-go. He was like playing into real like blue-collar stuff and old rock tropes. But what I think he does that Dylan doesn't do is he he kind of created like like motion pictures with his songs, right? He's very American. So Dylan like kind of wins like Nobel Prizes and he's like held up as a poet and he would, you know, be the guy that writes like the great American novel. Whereas Bruce Springsteen, all his songs are like fucking these huge, like, you know, blockbuster movies. They're so evocative and cinematic. And I in that Patreon write-up, I was saying, you know, Born to Run, it isn't like you put, you put it next to like an album by the Eagles. It's like Born to Run, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, do you know what I mean? It's like a cultural artifact. And that's what he does. He does like mainstream art. Um, And, you know, when you're moving, like when you're in that kind of sphere, that leaves him open to become a caricature. And I think a lot of people are weary of the idea of Bruce Springsteen. And I totally get that, particularly when you see him popping up on the Super Bowl and he's like talking, he's shouting about like putting down the guacamole and he's like sliding crotch first into cameras. And, you know, he's kind of very crowd pleasing and his shows are like three hours long. But actually all of that is the showman, the boss, you know, it's boss mode, as you say. But like Bruce Springsteen as an artist, he's up there with the best. Is this album up there with his best, do you think? It's going to take time because, like, he's so many classics. I think this slots right in there. I think it's... If he set out with the intention to create a great, old-fashioned, back-to-basics E Street Band record, he's done that. Like, he succeeded with this. And I think his songwriting, the run he's been on the last couple of albums has been very strong, and he continues it here. There's some kind of corny moments, because there always is with Bruce, but... Yeah, particularly the songs he's unearthed and just breathed life into. And even when he's going down potentially corny routes, like a song like House of a Thousand Guitars, which is like his hymn, what a title. The Power of Rock and Roll. I think he gets <laughs> away with it. And that is the power of Bruce Springsteen. It's him like doing an old Bruce Springsteen album, but he gets away with it. Um, and as a fan, that makes it an easy eight for me. If you've been kind of kicking against Bruce for a long time or you're like on the fence, Probably less so. I'm going to guess your score is less so, Dave. Where'd you stand on it? 
I mean, it's probably a six out of ten for me. But that's okay. like, that's you mentioned. I think you, you like first of all, I like, very much enjoyed that kind of Dylan uh, Springsteen comparison. But also, like you mentioned, the idea of Bruce being overwhelming, and that's exactly where I'm yeah. at with it. I feel like with certain artists, touchstone artists or whatever, you could be in a position where, depending on how you were raised, even like you know, if you were in a house where like Bruce Springsteen was being played f- from a pivotal age, perhaps you'd grow up and like you take him with you. I never sure. had that experience, and to me, he's always been this kind of this avatar for America, but also this avatar for obviously the working class America and like people who desperately need him and like, you know, sign into their jobs and listen to Bruce Springsteen and hate their boss and whatever, you know, um, or, or that's obviously a, a, an oversimplification. That's probably yeah, one yeah. person's experience. But I mean, that, there could be that one person in every fucking town and every state that I assume Bruce Springsteen has played a gig in because again, he is that kind of magical figure. But um, I'm, I am attracted to his charisma and obviously his kind of sense of spirit. Um, I just, I've never been able to fall in love with the music too hard because I do find it quite similar. Obviously, like the classics are the classics. There's some really good stuff on this. I mentioned the opening track, which I think is absolutely beautiful. Um, yeah, there's a few duds. Like, for example, like, you know, The Power of Prayer and Rainmaker, they're just too Bruce for me. Yeah, Rainmaker is very, like, Americana, isn't it? Like, that will it, wind you up if you're not like, into that kind of, yeah. <laughs> but, like, to be fair, like, you know, you get to, like, stuff towards the end, like Ghost, Song for Orphans, I'll See You in My Dreams. They're all beautiful, beautiful numbers. Um, it's just it's more that like there's even like like Last Man Standing and The Power of Prayer have the exact same musical structure and that, that's where I'm kind of like okay I get it this is your wheelhouse but Jesus Bruce like I mean you know I guess that's a sacrifice where it's like I think he wrote these songs in like 10 days around his gaff just with an acoustic guitar and then as I say it was recorded in five days so to try and get that like lightning in a bottle you're not going to have maybe, you know, there is a lot of repetition at times. There's like melody lines that like you like sound familiar and you're like, that must be an old song. And it's like, oh no, I heard it like three tracks before. But I think the energy throughout like carries the day for sure. When you said lightning in a bottle, my eyes legit I went know. down to try <laughs> yeah. things. I presumed it was just one of the songs. <laughs> But no, listen, I mean, like, I, I wish I was hardcore into Bruce. I th- we've, we've talked recently on the show even about the idea of, like, artists kind of sticking to the script and making the same album over and over again. And I'm sure there are some people who are listening to this who are huge Bruce Springsteen fans who are like, well, yes, Dave, but that's you with Nine Inch Nails. And it's like, of course, like, if you have a favourite and you're still getting them later in their career and if they're keeping, a, a like, a standard of quality or as finding you know, kind of, I guess, a rebirth of quality or whatever. And if that involves bringing in a band, it's great stuff. And I'm delighted for every Bruce Springsteen fan who loves it. To me, it's like, it's kind of in one ear and out the other, which in itself is kind of unfair because it speaks more to my relationship to Bruce Springsteen than Bruce Springsteen as an artist. He he remains fascinating to me. So when I say six out of 10, it's very, you know, throw a bunch of asterisks on it. It's a good fucking album. And maybe in time, I'll unlock it. But that said... It's not like I threw Western stars on this year again either. And that's, again, no shot at the man. I just, why would I He comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah, for sure. Um, The last thing I'll say is just, you know, when you ask, like, is he a good dude? I think when he is considered that, like, American everyman, he's now 71. Um, Even from that Rolling Stone feature, he is shocked by the state of, like, the rise of the the right in uh, the States. He seems like a very, very liberal, good dude, which is not something you can take for granted with a 71-year-old rock star. So that's a good thing as well. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But yeah, I appreciate your review. I totally know where you're coming from. Uh, I'll probably return to this because it's, it's kind of... Uh, yeah, contagious. Like, it's really infectious. I, I think it's great. I shouldn't have used those two words. We are in the middle of COVID. But hey, it's Bruce. <laughs>
Well, here's the thing. I am going to go check out your playlist because I do want to hear some of the classics, I guess. And that is available on patreon.com slash no encore, along with something of a mini essay that Craig wrote, by the way, which was very, yeah, very it's well very rambly. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed doing it, though. Yeah, but I got the vibe that you sat down to, to, to do my usual job, just throwing in a few paragraphs. But then you were like, yes, I, I kept scrolling down. And I was like, he's still writing. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah listen lots of bang for your book at patreon.com slash no encore next week on the show we will be reviewing another american icon ariana grande she's dropping an album as of this podcast dropping it's called positions and we will be going through all 14 tracks of that next week next wednesday though on no encore we'll be going through all 10 tracks actually going through the tracks one by one with the artists involved to talk about nilo and all the leaves are falling which is out awesome. now congratulations nilo congratulations to sonic architect adam who produced the album who was also craig on the episode i gave him a live fucking mic oh nice that'll create a great atmosphere um looking forward to that one for sure huge friend of the show and that that album's been a long time coming it's a huge moment it's a milestone moment so great to have a conversation to market Go listen to it today. Go listen to it in advance of Wednesday's episode. Um, very proud of Nilo. Very proud of all involved. And we go through it all next week. I've also been listening to lots of different things. Uh, Dylan Murphy has put out, or, sorry, is is going to put out, speaking of Irish music, Dylan Murphy, singer-songwriter, he's putting out a song called Between the Songs, featuring Limerick legend Emma Langford. That's coming out, I think, in a couple of weeks' time. He sent it to me there before. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, you know, we, we, we get songs sent to us sometimes, and you're always like, oh, no, what if it's terrible? This isn't. It's really, really good. It's really kind of jaunty, clever, knowing, upbeat duet number. It's meant to kind of be inspired by, like, you know, kind of like these kind of barroom duets, things that you probably see in, like, good movies, and it's got a spike to it, which I really, really enjoyed. So do oh. check out Dylan Murphy uh, when that comes out in, in a little a while now. Apart from that, Craig, I haven't listened to that much. I've been trying to mainly kind of get into scare mode. So yeah. what, have you, what have you been listening to this week? Um, a lot of Bruce <laughs> to put together that playlist, which I really enjoyed. It was, it was, um, yeah, it kind of takes you somewhere else. It's like you go into that fantastical Bruce world and also, uh, you know, assembling that kind of horror, um, scary top five kind of did the same thing, but like less uplifting, but it does kind of do that job of taking you somewhere else. You know, lots has been written about like the comfort of horror and how it pacifies your soul. It's that quote, quote from John Carpenter I always bring up. So yeah, and that kind of stuff. Anything else that's a bit newer? Uh, Sinead O'Brien, I've been listening to a good bit, who's um, London-based Limerick artist, um, kind of post-punk poetry which sounds a bit concerning initially but actually it's more like uh, marky smith like a mannered marky smith rather than a house and um yeah most modern painting is a great track to check out from her so that's the newer stuff but mainly bruce and horror I should also note, sorry, Mogwai put out a new track on Thursday called Dry Fantasy. They have a new album coming in February. And, Good name. You know, Mogwai, yeah, Mogwai are like Bruce in that you know what you're kind of going to get, but they do it so, so well, and it was such a nice pleasure. Didn't know there's any new music coming from them, and it was an absolutely lovely surprise of a Thursday afternoon. Check out pretty much everything Mogwai have ever done, really, is what I would say. But no, it is now, in fact, time for our top five. And it is, of course, Halloween. It is, of course, scary music. Adam, can you set the tone for us, please? I'd greatly appreciate that if you could do so and make us all feel a little bit spookified, if that is entirely possible. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like... I've been watching a horror movie every day, Craig, and so I, I, I wonder if my brain is rotting. Like, my housemates are like, are you all right? And I'm kind of like, this month has kind of felt twice as long maybe because of it, but 
I think it's been a worthwhile endeavor. Real quick, can you name a film that has scared you, like properly fucking scared you? Um, The Exorcist got under my skin the first time I saw it because I saw it very young, like way too young. And I am more like anything around like possession or kind of psychological stuff, it stays with me. Like jump scares kind of come and go. That said, um, <laughs> do you remember the first Mummy <laughs> movie? Not back in the 30s, I presume there was was one, but the Brendan Fraser one. I remember seeing that like in the cinema when I came out and it freaked me out. Just one particular bit. Obviously, it's like a fucking, it was like a G-rated film. <laughs> but do you remember just like that moment where they're being attacked by these scarab things that like climb under your skin? In the darkened cinema as a whatever aged kid, that w- I was just like, this is the most intense thing ever. I can feel them under my skin. I need to get out of here. <laughs> That's the one that stuck with me the most. Because as you know, I don't go to a huge amount of um, horror films in the cinema or the cinema in general. So when you're watching on a small screen, I guess I'm I'm a lot braver. How about you? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I mean, like I talked at length on uh, the Crow episode on No Popcorn this week, a bit of harrowing experience I had when I went to see The Blair Witch Project in 1999. That's up there for sure. I am probably <laughs> hours away at the stage of revisiting Ringu, the incredible Japanese horror film, which has stayed with me forever as well. Uh, yeah, I, again, I feel like with all these things, it's kind of like the less that the film shows you, the better. You know, the more it leads to your imagination. I think like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably the best horror movie ever made and you don't really even see that much in it, but your brain thinks that it has. Stuff like that's always always pretty great. But uh, yeah, look, listen, let's talk about music though. Audio, that medium, shall we? I said for this top five, no novelty songs. Um, I don't know how you went about it. What was your choice or what was your approach? Yeah, I wanted like legitimately scary sounding music. Um, so I didn't go down the route of like, oh, it's references Halloween or it's kind of fun to play at a Halloween party because they aren't happening. And that whole dressing up thing never really be in my bag. Uh, I know people love it and like, fair enough. But yeah, for me, Halloween is not a jolly time. It's a very, very serious time. <laughs> so when you, when you were like, when you kind of said, are we including like maybe soundtrack work, if that's, you know, those kind of songs, I was like, yeah, I mean, that's definitely the kind of the rabbit hole I was going down. Um, so yeah, I picked stuff that is terrifying in different ways. <laughs> How about you? Um, I, I had two songs in mind when I chose this list that were, went in there straight away and then I found over the course of the week that it was actually was kind of difficult to get it down to five in terms of like stuff that genuinely freaked me out and so somewhere along the way I had to compromise a little bit and I had to pick some stuff okay. that I find quite unnerving um, more than just outright shockingly scary and stuff I mean I will say that my number one legitimately freaks me the fuck out and I'd be very surprised if it's not on your list but we'll see um, but there's definitely a couple in here that are more like kind of just you know unsettling unnerving um, has stayed with me for different reasons provoke a sense of unease and I guess with that in mind let's start with mine shall we at number five for me
artist is Vessel. The song is called Red Sex, which is, I mean, a kind of a terrible name for a song, but, you know, here we are. This is what we're going to work with. And, yeah, it's from a 2014 album called Punish Honey. Uh, I first heard of it related to a film, but, like, on the trailer for a non-horror film, the amazing The Handmaiden, a stunning Park Chan-wook film from 2017, I think, that everybody should see. It's a great drama, really, really intense film, but not quite a horror But I was absolutely stopped in my tracks when I heard this. I was just like, well, this is like nothing else I've ever heard in my life before. Um, Mm. It's just so strange and different. Uh, Vessel, the artist in question, as mentioned, is actually a guy from Bristol, of all places. I don't know how scary Bristol is, but um, they've certainly birthed a man who who can unnerve me. His name is Sebastian Gainsborough. And, you know, he's just kind of like one of these kind name. of cool... Yeah, it sounds like a fucking, you know, RPG character or something. And, like, yeah. he's just kind of one of these cool dudes who you'll see on, like, Resident Advisor and that kind of stuff. Um, I feel like this track, you know, starts off like a sentient steam train that has left the track and is determined on hunting you down. And then it gets a bit weird. So I love that kind <laughs> of stuff. I love that kind of weird feeling. I made a playlist years ago called Unnerve, and I was just throwing songs in there that really freaked me out. And that was the first one that went in. Um there's a pitchfork track review of this um which says that like it's about the aesthetic of this artist gaining a more chiseled form especially when Gainsborough drives it into discordance giving the track a post-industrial hue emphasized by the metallic beats that drive it to a close there's also references to like paying tribute to kevin shields glide guitar style and yeah it's just kind of one of those ones where like i'll never forget the first time i heard it and ever since then whenever it comes around which is usually on a spotify playlist if i hear it because i don't know where else i'm going to hear it it does tend to just kind of shake me up a bit so not one that has like you know like i guess on the fright scale you know it's not quite up there but it does you know it makes me look over my shoulder i guess yeah, well, I turned off the lights for the clips um, and then I started kind of bopping to it. You might have noticed it's a nice piece of music. I feel like I'm missing the context of the rest of the track, right? Does it go on a kind of winding, keep you guessing kind of, Is it? does it take you to strange places? Because there is definitely an undercurrent of something unsettling there. And I think I need to hear the full thing to get properly frightened. Would that be fair? That's fair. In terms of like, I found it like as well with some of these clips that like, uh, taking them down to like you know 30 seconds to a minute does kind of take yeah, yeah. It, it portrays them a little bit like this one is like i say like that kind of steam train reference i mentioned like this thing starts off in fluid full motion and then like it gradually brings in those kind of weird yeah, yeah, yeah. and those weird kind of like and yeah it does eventually like there is a part where it just goes completely fucking batshit but like it just has the entire like it's about five and a half minutes and like just the atmosphere of a thread is just this kind of oppressive one and yeah i mean listen you know if you're fucking too tough for it craig that's fine but i'm gonna say here with my lights on pal <laughs> i feel like i'm going to be going into a lot of your selections kind of blind blind like a vampire do vampires have slight problems because they're like bat based is that a no. thing <laughs> they should Jesus do really Christ, shouldn't watch, they they should have like echolocation <laughs> <laughs> it's not how it works no, vampires okay. in the movies craig are, are, are hopeless romantics who can see great look amazing and generally yeah, are undone by f- their ambition i'm aware of vampires in films but i'm talking about the real actual things do they have issues with their vision because they do have the bat based thing real life vampires that we yeah. often see in the news is it yeah let's get into this, my- yeah cheers <laughs> fair enough um Let's stick with films. Uh, a Lynchian connection right up top. And this evokes um, a scene where an A-bomb test in the American desert unleashes like existential hell. And yet somehow it has evoked even greater horrors over the years. And when heard, here it is.
Yeah, that was uh, Christoph Penderecki, uh, Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima. Uh, this was probably the one um, pick I had where every time I listen to like the clip, just running back through them, this keeps me tense every time. Um, Dave, you were acknowledging uh, the shout there for sure. I know you're very aware of this. Um, I didn't include the kind of signature like opening string kind of shriek where it just feels like the atoms of the world are being rent asunder, but I opted instead for this this passage, which is like kind of twisting, uncertain. I'd probably best compare it to like confused kittens clambering over each other and desperately scraping at a sack that's been thrown in a river. Dave, uh, you're number four. <laughs> but no, I mean, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, like, it, this is great. This is a great piece of work. Uh, it won, like, an UNESCO award in, like, 61, just after it had come out. Obviously, it's it's honouring the victims of Hiroshima and just this, you know, very real, just horrendous horror. Um, and it's 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 darkly beautiful. Um, Penderecki was saying he was trying to kind of come up with a, a new musical language with it, and I think he kind of succeeded for sure. And I think this inspired, like, a lot of the stuff that was floating around my shortlist was later... Um, latter day stuff that's kind of noisier, more electrified, more distorted. But I think a lot of kind of warped metal even comes stems from this approach. Um, the kind of push and pull of it, and yeah, it's 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 discombobulating. It's great. As featured in episode eight of Twin Peaks: The Return, of course. Yeah, and that episode which caught everyone's attention, even if they weren't really paying attention to the show. Um, they managed to outshine Nine Inch Nails in that episode, where, or this piece of music, rather, managed to outshine yeah. Nine Inch Nails in that episode, which takes some doing. Yeah, I mean, like, it's whenever we do this, because obviously we're doing this in Zoom, um, we get, like, audio played for us by Adam. We don't know what each person's going to, you know, pick, so I'm hearing it for the first time, and, like, there is that, like, processed audio version coming through in Zoom that, you know, like, yeah. the, the final edit that Adam will put in was is so much better sounding. But, like, this particular clip via like zoom processing or whatever the fuck i feel like i've just been cursed or hexed or something yeah it, it didn't quite right sound like there. music it felt like something deeper and more primal <laughs> yeah it felt like like a like a horrible spell was being cast so um it's funny at one stage i stumbled upon this in my research and i was like ah nah Craig will have that. That's fine. <laughs> well, it's only <laughs> number no... five, dudes. <laughs> <laughs> number four for me, however. Let's do it.
That is East Hastings by Godspeed, You Black Emperor, a song from 1997 that would appear on the 28 Days Later uh, soundtrack. Well, in the film, not on the soundtrack because they didn't give the rights for it to appear on a soundtrack, but it is in the movie. Um, Incredible, incredible, iconic post-rock brilliance and deeply unsettling, not just because of its association with that film, but also it just has this incredible sense of atmosphere, this incredible sense of place. Uh, the song is almost 20 minutes long, so as you can imagine, even picking one section of it for this is really fucking difficult. So I really would have, like, I wish I could let that clip play for another two minutes at least, because that's the kind of the biggest tension point of it. It arrives, I want to say, fucking like 12 plus minutes in and it builds to this huge crescendo and like either side of it though like the intro to the song is so discordant and weird um it's so hard to kind of get a sense of what's really going on and at the end of it there's just this weird kind of radio chatter um it's it's a short film in and of itself and godspeed Mm. are one of those acts that like you know have had this incredible air of mystery uh, throughout their career quite deliberately so and it suits them i guess in some senses um there's some really really good stuff there's an amazing profile on them which features quotes with danny boyle director of 28 days later uh in the guardian written by kitty empire in 2002 and it notes that like when the band made the cover of the enemy in 2000 they didn't actually appear um she noted herself that like if you were to try and interview the band you have to submit a request and wait like 14 days you know they, they were require 14 days notice of an interview so they can decide whether they can do it and who will speak um like they don't even give their surnames because they feel that they're irrelevant uh they came out of montreal squats and warehouse spaces playing mainly to their friends soundtracking art films and bring your own beer parties um you know i guess it's one man's treasure is another man's pretentious trash and i can understand that but they really do some incredible singular work and you know it's interesting to kind of like look about how they even ended up in a film like 28 days later which of course is you know it's an independent horror film but it did get like mainstream releases Mm. uh danny boyle in this interview was talking about how he managed to persuade them to appear on the on the film itself he said we got in touch with them through the internet i don't think under normal circumstances you'd ever get to speak to them but they were fantastic very helpful um basically they were very very sound but like they very specifically said like that they wouldn't give the rights for it to be on the actual soundtrack itself because they have no interest in being successful they've no interest in being like number one heroes or whatever um although Boyle does say that like they're so secure in themselves the way that they do things they don't think it's a danger and they'd never let it be released as a single but if it was and if it got to number one I don't think it would affect them whatsoever um they're the kind of act that you know you're not going to throw on all the time because even just by virtue of the length of some of their songs like that 20 minutes I was going to ask yeah yeah (laughs) how often just throw on all 20 minutes of this and what is the setting? Is it like turn off the lights, Dave in the dark, listening to this? And also, you know, Dave you said in the the, Dave in the dark, <laughs> spin-off pod, when you were saying they were like uh, playing mates, uh, bring your own beer parties. So I was like, is this the soundtrack for uh, like bring your own beer party? It's great, but maybe it's like more of a kind of absent shindig. I don't know. This is like that um, the infamous Pitchfork barbecue playlist that had Anna Nee drone bomb me on it, of <laughs> yeah. course. I guess, you know, it, it, different strokes to, to run the world, Craig. But I mean, like, essentially, you asked there, yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know how you, when we do these top fives, like, I do like to kind of, when I have my five, I do like to try and listen to them back to back and full and whatever. And 
yeah, with these tastings, when it comes on, um, all 20 minutes of it, I kind of found myself trying to tune out of everything else. I didn't want to be reading Football 365 or anything, or I didn't want to be, yeah, like, yeah. you know, WhatsApping people or whatever. I just kind of let the music take me, and I think that's one of the reasons why this song is so otherworldly. Like, like I say, this isn't a song that, like, will result in a lack of sleep for me, but it is very very singular and different and kind of dangerous and i think it belongs in this top five for those reasons because again from a transportative quality ah man i can i can see myself in the fucking i don't know there's like this it's it's like a it's like a scary fucking vortex of time crumbling around me and this is playing and i'm i'm in fucking death stranding i mean like a hideo kojima game or something there's just something (laughs) very 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 ghostly about this i think it's fucking but alluring amazing. like you're welcoming a demon in like you've got oh, the okay, ouija board out and he's promising what, uh, a lot th- that's what dave in the dark is all about really <laughs> can't wait to hear that man um yeah let's stick with otherworldly and um for my number four this is what happens when the voice of an angel starts dabbling in the dark arts it will look into your eyes Yeah, so Scott Walker there, um, former teen idol, former, you know, member of glorious pop harmonizers, the Walker Brothers. Beautiful interpreter of Jacques Brel love songs, uh, turns totally experimental artist and Donald Duck impersonator on that track, The Escape from the Drift, um, delivering a like a pretty innocuous what's up, Duck, I think. And so making it like as terrifying as like an, an innocuous how's Annie. Um, it's a little bit funny. I do kind of jump, even though I know it's coming every time. And it is surrounded by such gloom on that record. Like, you really need to hear this in context from The Drift. Um, so you can't quite process what he's going for. Um, so it's just demented. It doesn't compute. And I think there's terror in that. It reminds me of, like, the Don't Look Now reveal <laughs> at the end. You're just like, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> like, um, And, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of typical of Walker's, um, the late great Walker's later work um, from about the 90s on. Like, he'd gotten experimental in the mid-80s with Climate of Hunter. Um, 1995's Tilt is brilliant, and I recommend everyone listens to it. But once you go beyond that, I don't know if I can re- recommend listening to the stuff. It's more to be admired. Uh, it just gets more and more cryptic and like stripped back. And on this one, it's just like a total like assault on the senses. Uh, it's really elaborate, kind of um, very grand. I think why it works for me is because it doesn't, it never feels like he's just going for like empty posturing. It's kind of Scott Walker. We know the journey he's been on. We know his musical pedigree. Uh, so this is just like pure expression. He's not trying to horrify you. He's just really tapping into something that's in him and it's beyond comprehension. And that's what's terrifying about it. Yeah. And something that wants to get out. I was, um, again, it's like, I think you said already that you're like, Craig is literally sitting in the dark in his room. So I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at, I'm looking at like, as if Craig's about to do a fucking seance or something. And while you were talking after that one, cause like after that track played, there was very much like an awkward, like is it okay to speak yet moment, which we usually have anyway, but I think it's doubled now. But I heard like this kind of big 
elongated scratching sound like after this was playing and i was that was like, me speaking no i'm pretty sure it was actually like uh, someone pulling their curtains closed next door or something but it just made me like look around and fright and like yeah so it's just I'm, I'm on edge man and scott walker can do this for sure i mean again not a horror film but his his work on the childhood of a leader which was one of his last scores that he did before he passed away mm. The opening kind of stretch of that is incredibly like high strings, pulsating, relentless. Um, I'm not, I'm not as big a Walker head as you probably are, Craig. But at the same time, I do appreciate his ability to unnerve is kind of one of a kind. So yeah, and listen, to be fair, who the fuck saw the Donald Duck thing coming? You know. Very true, yeah. And I, I will confirm that I'm a Walker head in the sense of being into Scott Walker and also Walker Texas Ranger. Dave, your next choice. Well, who isn't? Uh, number three for me, uh, with these top fives, I'm aware of repetition. I'm aware of certain art- artists kind of coming up again and again. And I don't know about you, but I do try and steer away from favoritism here and there. But again, yeah. like I say, doing scary songs, this one has to be in here. Here is my number three. <gasps> wake up! Wake up! What's happening? I felt his breath in my hair. He's here. I know he's here. Well, start the car, Mom. Hurry up. I can't. I can't. I don't know what to do. Turn the key, please. Go, go. Where is he? Where is he? There's a star behind us, Mama. Oh, you be quiet now. Mommy, I'm going to die. I'm so afraid. He's coming. He's going to hit us so faster. You know, I'm forever recommending M83, and Before the Dawn Heals Us in particular, as a perfect 10 of an album, and... You know, sometimes when people talk to me about it, they come back to me and they're like, yeah, it's a great album, but like, really? Car Chase Terror? That track? And I'm like, oh yeah, man, Car Chase Terror fucking rules. And um, this is <laughs> kind of an outlier on the album in that like it has this weird spoken kind of. word thing. Kind of, yeah, just kind of. Um, it has this weird spoken word thing here, an actress called Kate Moran, and it's her doing all the dialogue between this mother and daughter in a car on a night in which they, the mother is insisting that they're being stalked by some guy that she saw uh his face was sort of erased she says at one stage which i think is just a really great one-liner and her young daughter who's kind of trying to snap her out of it it's all open to interpretation it's very ambiguous is is there a car at all you know is there two people in that car is there a killer after them and why is it here at all why is it on the album why do the trademark m83 synths and drums come in and like bring it into incredible angelic territory by the end of it uh it's a short horror story really and yeah it kind of brings other films to mind again, as some of these songs already have. Uh, I think about films like Switchblade Romance or High Tension, as it was called, and even Zodiac, that kind of sequence in the middle of Zodiac, where he appears on a highway or whatever. Um, it's just a good fright story, right? Like it just—it feels like one of those kind of urban legends or something brought to music, and I think it's amazing. 
I, f- I find it legitimately unsettling and I think it works. Uh, however, there are people out there who don't think it works. And as a matter of fact, I found a couple of particularly uh, vicious write-ups, uh, I guess, against it. Pitchfork founder Ryan Schreiber was not impressed. At the end of uh, 2005, he included the track in his 15 worst releases of 2005, alongside the likes of My Humps by Black Eyed Peas, which is just a bit too egregious for me. Um, he said, why near the end of M83's car crash obsessed before the dawn heals us must it be a genuine car crash? While the album is a bit too ambitious at times, uh, reaching almost Vangelis-like levels of bombast, it otherwise follows the previous album to its logical framework, Firework Spectacular Conclusion. This is doubly excruciating, however. Uh, the result is something like being punched in the face over and over again. The catastrophically unlistenable, pretentious art house equivalent of a sub Wycliffe hip hop skit. Gut wrenching. Meanwhile, in the wow. Washington Post write up of the album, they note there's also a lot of spoken word stuff, sometimes recited by American actress Kate Moran, which restricts the musical settings to a specific and not always very interesting meaning. The most egregious example, Car Chase Terror, is a trailer for a horror movie that only diehard fans of the genre would want to see. Um, I think that they're off their rockers, Craig. I think it's a, I think it's a great piece of fright music, and I stand by it. Yeah, I, you know, people being bewildered by why it's even on, on the album, it just seems like classic Gonzalez, right? Because he's constantly dipping into stuff he loved as a kid or as a teen. And this seems like an homage to kind of schlocky horror, right? I presume that's kind of what he's going for. And as with all of his material, you know, it's whether the references are quite to your taste. Um, when they are, they're sublime. Then other times you're like, what is he doing? But uh, yeah, this kind of works for me. Like, it's kind of... It's weird, but it raises a smile. Um, okay, my number three. And yes, it's My Humps by Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> Pointed, Pointed at the six-month-old kid in the crib. Oh, Frankie. Maybe could have had a content warning before that first one. It was a bit more horrific than I remembered when I was doing the clip. Um, It's Suicide's um, infamous Frankie Teardrop. I actually wrapped up the, the Springsteen playlist I did with a cover of another one of this band's songs, uh, which is like really dreamy and uplifting. And it's like Bruce being like, you can do it. The universe loves you. Um, and this is obviously another song by that band that says, you can't do it. The universe hates you. And it's sticking with your kind of, you know, horror narrative thing. It's telling a really doomed tale um, about this guy who's just totally out of luck, um, goes psychotic. The most terrifying thing about it is, you know, it ends with him taking his own life, but then he's trapped in hell and it ends with the message that we're all in hell and then there's a cacophony of noise. And um, yeah, Suicide is a band, uh, very influential. One of the first bands that come from New York that labeled themselves as punk, but they were kind of smarter and older than a lot of their contemporaries, um, the duo of Alan Vega, Martin Rev. And yeah, as you can hear there, they incorporate a lot of like primitive um, drum machines and synths. So you've got that really, 
haunting kind of steady beat to this story where, you know, it's usually just kind of cool when you hear it under her songs. But with this, it's like the home of a faulty generator. And yeah, I think if like Kraftwerk were kind of robots, these guys were like feral animals. And this kind of crops up on a lot of these kind of lists. And you can hear why. And there's a lot of songs in this kind of genre that are also pretty horrific, um, which I was listening to <laughs> for research for this. Uh, Trob and Gristle are great at it. You'll be surprised to hear. Um, there's a song called Hamburger Lady, which I did not include because it's even more disturbing than this. And it's not as good a tune. This kind of works for me. It's very dark. Uh, Lou Reed once said he wished he'd written this song because that's the kind of guy Lou Reed was. Uh, yeah, it's been called, like, I think Taxi Driver the Musical was one famous quote about it. And I think it's darker than even that. I feel like you're out to genuinely upset the listeners here with some of these Yeah, audio clips, I maybe man. should have flagged Jesus. that one just beforehand. <laughs> we can't. It's too late now. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um... Uh, 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 what do you think about the idea of songs like this? I mean, like, making music that is, I guess, by design, meant to upset and unnerve and, you know, really kind of fuck people up. I mean, obviously, it's ain't going to get played in the radio. You're not going to become a fucking pop star or whatever. Who cares about that kind of stuff? But, I mean, like, how much sustainability does listening to music of this nature have? I mean... How, like is it a case of like there's only so much I can take of it I mean like I think of a band like yeah. Sugar for example who make this kind of intense metal like this crazy high fucking octane like like it just feels like your brain is fucking melting while you're listening to it and I'm like I can dip in for the odd song but I could never go through an entire album so I don't know I mean it, it's kind of a tough one to dive into I guess I'm really kind of I guess yeah. for some people who knows maybe it's the greatest thing ever but like and I did, I kind of steered clear of a lot of that stuff where it's just like trying to be like this auditory assault on you because it's just like, it feels quite cheap. And as I said, yeah, there can be quite a lot of metal. There's, you know, incredible metal out there, but there's also, you know, it's a breeding ground for stuff that's just trying to almost, it sounds like it's trying to troll people. I think this is totally different because it's abrasive in its kind of content. And in fairness to um, the band, they were going for, a political statement with it. it was about the hopelessness of kind of the American dream. It was about like poverty and inequality in America at the time and how, you know, the worst crimes in society can be kind of linked back to people's upbringings and things like that. And so, yeah, there, there's a message there. It's not just like, check out this, you know, creepypasta. Um, it's kind of deeper than that. But I agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that you would steer clear of because it's just, it's just going for... Uh, shock value but I wouldn't be listening to this too often it's taken us the wider hole of like the debut album is great but yeah maybe one to skip my silver medal this week is definitely an auditory assault for sure um, it's we've talked about you know certainly in my list I've talked about uh, songs that would evoke the idea of a film or maybe be featured in a film but like here's one that's like written specifically for a film now I, with that in mind Trying to pick just one is difficult, and at one stage I was I was leaning quite heavily towards It Follows uh, and Disaster Piece, his score for that movie, particularly the the track called Title, which is like the main kind of theme to it, which is incredibly powerful and brilliantly done. Um, but I think I enjoy that one a bit too much, so I picked one that I do enjoy, but it really, really does uh, have an effect. And having recently rewatched the film that's associated with it, and it's one that we're going to talk about on No Popcorn in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, um, I don't know how much of a content warning you need. There's a little bit of weirdness here, but you should be fine. See how you go with this.
Yeah, so uh, that's Goblin, and the track is called Suspiria, taken from the film of the same name, 1977, Dario Argento, Giallo classic. Like I say, no popcorn. Next time we come back with that, we're going to be talking about the original Suspiria and the remake, both of which uh, have very, very interesting musical scores and approaches to music in general. So this is the main theme from Suspiria 1977 by a band called Goblin and it's fucking incredible and basically this is very very recurrent it's in the film from the start it's all over it it's constant I mean you know it's the old cliche of like oh it's a character but this is a character that refuses to be ignored and I think you know ultimately what really freaks me out about this song isn't just or isn't so much like the um, the kind of Lauren Ipsum esque incantations in the background the occasional screaming of the word witch uh, the really fucking sinister synth that just kind of creeps and crawls and eventually gives way to this kind of weirdly chaotic fucking almost disco-esque jam before the song is over it's actually more than anything else it's the fucking constant elastic band drum that you hear that kind of ritualistic wicker man-esque thing that beat that follows you because it's going to get you and you're doomed and it, it hangs like a portent over the whole film the film if you've never seen it before uh, definitely check it out. Check out the original, check out the remake, but do check out the original, whatever you do. It's one of the most beautiful horror films you will ever see. The lighting, the production design is outrageous. The script is a little bit weak. Uh, the acting is dubbed in whatever language you want to see it in, so it's a bit awkward anyway, but Uncanny Valley in a way. A very, very simple story about a dance student called Susie Banyan who goes to Germany, I believe, and... Enrolls in this uh, dance academy, which holds sinister secrets, essentially. And the fucking goblin score, man. Jesus Christ. You've seen this, right? You've heard this, haven't you? Hello, yeah. I'm Jay Leno now. <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. Um, yeah, I, do you know what? This was in my shortlist. I think it's incredible. It's almost, you know, I was thinking maybe it's slightly too wholesome because it's such a jam. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I really enjoy listening to it. Um I was the way I was thinking of of it was with those kind of bells. It's almost like a hipster take on a Christmas song, <laughs> and it's just as catchy. I think it's up there, like the unholy trinity of like um, horror film themes. I think this Halloween and the way tubular bells is maybe used with The Exorcist, like that's this is right up there. And I don't think it's talked about that much, so it's a great choice. But yeah, this is one where I'm like, I kind of get a kick out of it when it's playing. I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore. But it's kind of like got this weird, empowering, dark vibe to it. But you're totally right about the like those kind of drums and just like there's something very ancient and unknowable going on in the background, which just gives it this enormous power. There's a great interview with uh, Claudio Simonetti of the band In Fact magazine from about six years ago, I think it was. And he talks about working with Dario Argento and how Argento told him, I need the audience to feel that the witches are still there, even if they're not actually on the screen. And the music in this, which again is just so relentless and so oppressively brilliant, is it absolutely does that job. There's a really nice sign off to this interview as well, because they get into the, the, the kind of technical aspects of working on like uh, using like kind of Moog modular systems and stuff and like interesting synths. And it kind of signs off by saying that at the time in the late 70s, it was very rare to hear a synthesizer in film scores, but Goblin helped to change this. Simonetti says you would never use a synth to do soundtracks back then. Normally it would be made with an orchestra or with a band. Nobody was using a synthesizer for that. I think we were maybe one of the first. And then in the 80s the synthesizer and drum machine became more famous and became more usual. Um, but there's a great little anecdote where it says that um, in 2012 Claudio Simonetti came face to face with John Carpenter himself of course known for not just directing great films but making incredible synth based music. Mm. And Carpenter uh, introduced himself to Claudio Simonetti by saying I know you very well. I still all of your music. 
<laughs> That's great. Okay, I'm going to stick with the kind of um, vaguely demonic and keeping it religious because I think if you tap into various churches of this world, um, you'll find some great kind of seams of horror for sure. This is probably now a favourite of um, like QAnon conspiracy fans, but please don't hold that against it. Yeah, so that's the work of Jocelyn Pook, um, UK composer. And what she's done here, Dave, is she's flipped some old-timey Romanian chanting and and, uh, added these great kind of haunting violins to it. And she's done it for Eyes Wide Shut. So this was used by Stanley Kubrick. Um, Basically in that scene where Tom Cruise attends what's kind of like an Epstein party, uh, I guess a tame one. It's, you know, there's kind of consensual sexy stuff and masks going on and like naff rituals. But this alludes to darker things. And I think the music definitely makes that scene. It's an interesting film. It's a long film. It's um, kind of inscrutable. I, I I always kind of liked it. It's a great um, film, man. Like, yeah. That, that film got I think it was kind of ripped kicking. to shreds, wasn't it, when it, it was, first came yeah. out? But yeah. It was. Um, it's great. Yeah, I really like it. Um, Stanley Kubrick had heard this when it was called... Um, something like Blasphemous Priest or something like that. Um, Jocelyn Puga just put it out when she had the idea for kind of flipping the the chanting and he was captivated by it and he's like, okay, I want to use this somehow. And she's talked about how his kind of leading question or his kind of leading statement when they first met was like, uh, let's make sex music. And he was like, yeah, this has got to be kind of sensual and weird. And she's like, like she said, Stanley didn't really care to elaborate. Um, so I just kind of went for it. Um, I don't know if this is really that sexy, but I'll trust Kubrick on it. Um, I've actually got, maybe we'll hear a little bit of the, um, what it is, is Romanian priest singing Orthodox liturgy. And I think actually, without putting it backwards, it's maybe even more terrifying. Adam, can you give us a snippet of that? Yeah, so it kind of does the same job, right? Those guys were just freaky guys to begin with. Um, But yeah, it's that thing of like, you know, there's ancient shit going down. Um, There's dark rituals happening. Um, It's a vault you probably don't want to open too much. But yeah, it's it's, it's always stuck with me. Um, It kind of pops into my head at weird times as well. And yeah, as you say, the film's great. It's There's obviously this whole kind of conspiracy thing built up around us. Do you have any hot take on that, Dave? Where it's like, oh, they dead... Yeah, Can you um, give me an example of one of the weird times that this pops up in your head, please? I'm hoping like during some kind of Zoom meeting presentation of a Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, just before I present a content strategy that's going to revolutionize like someone's healthcare plan. Yeah, yeah, um, those kind of moments in the shower, you know, hanging <laughs> out know, with the cats. Yeah. <laughs> Glass of red on a Sunday evening. Um, Sitting amongst my beloved family, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, to be fair, I mean, like, I always found that whole sequence, you know, uh, in Eyes Wide Shut, the order sequence to be decidedly unsexy and freezing yeah. cold, as is the vast majority of the film. And there was a lot of build up to that movie. There was, you know, obviously it's Kubrick's, I think it's his last film. And it's like, it was heavily maligned, uh, as were the performances, even though they were very, very good. And... I think it got like two stars across the board for the most place. And again, there was a lot of talk of like, oh my God, it's got this like orgy. So therefore it must be really, really hot. Right. And like, it's no, it's, 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 it's a really tough film. I think it was ways. kind of it's marketed as like this steamy thriller, wasn't it? People thought they were going to see. Yeah, like, for sure. And it's this one, near three hours. It's this very labyrinthine thing. Um, yeah, like it took me a few watches, but like I think it's great. I think it's an excellent film. In terms of conspiracy theories, no, I don't think Stanley Kubrick was murdered by some kind of strange mask wearing cult that were like, oh no, he's making a film about us, and then they somehow killed him. Isn't that the thing? But like I can't imagine. Yeah, that's essentially, true. he knew too much, essentially. Um, I think the actual facts around the film are some somehow even stranger. Just like you hear of like the, the kind of. The grueling time that uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise had of it, where it's just like you hear of Kubrick making like Cruise go through the same door like 80 times in a row or and he was kind of like playing with their own relationship to kind of, you know, get at that kind of marital distrust in it, which, you know, obviously their relationship didn't end so well. So, yeah, I, I think Stanley Kubrick passed away because he was an old man that had just made a three hour long film that took a lot out of everyone involved. Oh, what a trickster. Good old Stanley. Okay, uh, number one for me, Craig. And yeah, I mean, like, I'd be surprised if it's not also your number one. Feel free to jump in if it is. And yeah, this song terrifies me to my very, very core. Hit the music, Adam. This prodigy song, says Sonic Architect Adam, being very sarky indeed about Come to Daddy by Aphex Twin, uh, Richard yeah. D. James, who of course is a British electronic music producer and sometimes Irish, uh, if the Choice Music Prize have nominated him that year, I guess. Limerick's uh, finest. The, Limerick's finest, man. And this is Come <laughs> to Daddy. Uh, this is an astounding song from 1997. Uh, it had a really, really freaky video. It has all that kind of Aphex Twin imagery that you would associate with it. And uh, it really, really, really upsets me, Craig. Uh, a few years after it came out, Richard D. James talked about it. He said, it came out while I was just hanging around in my house getting pissed and doing this crappy death metal jingle. Then it got marketed and a video was made and this little idea that I had, which was a joke, turned into something huge. It wasn't right at all. Uh, which is, you know, like that's one way of him kind of, I guess, just like throwing it out the window and not caring about it. But to me, I'm like, nah, man. He knows what he's done here. He's made the musical equivalent of a hex, and he wants to get himself free of this. And so yeah, he's yeah. going to disown it publicly, take no riches, you know, walk away from the curse. It's fine. Pass it on to people like me who can talk about it on the podcast many, many years later. Uh, you may have seen the Chris Cunningham directed video in which a demon 
uh, tries to eat an old woman's head off and all kinds of weird shit happens in it. Um, it's been used in lots of stuff. Like it's, it was used in like great films like 8mm by Joel Schumacher and television shows like Master of None starring cancelled comedians. But also, <laughs> I guess most importantly, Dillinger Escape Plan did a cover of it, which is all I need in, in this life of sin. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, this was um, kind of in the shortlist. I it, I thought you might have it, so I was like, I can leave it to one side. And if you didn't have it, I was going to give it maybe an honorary mention as the scariest music video of all time, for sure. And yeah, is he trying to eat that old lady or is he just kind of shouting at her? She doesn't do oh, yeah. much to kind of get out of its way. It's kind of like a... <laughs> If you were confronted, it looks with like that. he's terrible breath as well. Do you really feel like he'd be able to just like like rationally deal with the situation? To be fair, yeah, I will confess I was too afraid to go look up the video and watch it fresh. I think you're correct. I think it's more that she gets screamed at relentlessly. Yeah, yeah, it's like she gets the hair dryer. It's like the Ferguson hair dryer. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Like many a great footballer uh, <laughs> has found. But that had a, you know that had a huge impact. I think maybe uh, Richard G. James kind of is a bit flippant about it because he kind of became the come to daddy guy for a lot of people right i think this was on a lot of you know most banned lists and kind of most dangerous songs and yeah it's a it's a huge can imagine, song can you imagine being <laughs> referred to as the come to daddy come to guy da- <laughs> <laughs> well you know some people call me the come to daddy guy yeah yeah when when window liquor is your wholesome product uh that says a lot about the artist but obviously he's so much more than that um a very very good number one david um okay i'll give you mine this is less scary i think but this haunts me somewhat it's the song that immediately came to mind when we decided to do this list and lou reed said he wished he'd written frankie teardrop well he wrote this Velvet Underground, Venus and Furs, um, said Lou Reed. But really, this is kind of all about John Cale. It's that shrieking electric viola. Um, yeah, I think calling them kind of stabs doesn't really do them justice. It's like these shards of demonic forces bursting into our reality. And it has that kind of um, Wicker Man thing, I think, a little bit as well, Dave, where it's um, like Lou Reed's on ostrich guitar, which is just like it's every string um, tuned to the one note. And there is a kind of like ye olde English like folk lament elements to it, uh, which just harkens back to like pagan stuff. And it's a song about S&M apparently, and apparently it's ostensibly another sexy song. So I don't know if that's a deep dive into my psyche, but again, not sexy in the slightest for me. Um, Not kinky, um, just kind of haunting and a great song and like really forward thinking and influential. And this is from like 1967 at a time when, you know, Sgt. Pepper was groundbreaking. This was going on in New York, um, that den of iniquity. Um, so, yeah, this is my number one. And Dave, you're flashing your phone there. So, Dave, you put out the call. You put out the call on WhatsApp uh, yesterday to some of the lads to ask oh, yeah. for their favourites. And George Moran, uh, former guest of this show, 
immediately came in with Venus in first and I of, of course could not respond to him so I jumped into a side chat with him and I was like yes man that's my number one I can't let Dave know but it's a great song so George wins the top five I guess yeah yeah I'm flashing my phone because I it's happened Craig I have been visited by the Twitter DM ghost of Jedward they have just fucking DM oh sorry really <laughs> I swear yeah I'll hold it up yeah there you go you can see it see boom beautiful yeah, it says, have a Jepic Halloween weekend. Two ghost emojis. Who are you going to call? John and Edward. Ghostbusters. That doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> uh, after all of my, my demonising of this behaviour, I now have, I've now entered the, the cool Twitter stratosphere. What is going being, on with those guys? It's a and marketing campaign. More importantly, their th- team, yeah. <laughs> it's a marketing <laughs> campaign, man. Like, uh, uh, and look, here I am doing it. I've been so distracted. <laughs> during this strange pagan ritual song that you've chosen. Yeah, it's unsettling. I'm unsettled. That that freaked me out more than anything else. I was just like, what the fuck? I love um, that you noticed that as this was playing. That's a great I, moment. Yeah, I, I, I can multitask, apparently. I'm, I'm all discombobulated, man. They got me. And that's our top five this week, guys. Um, what an oh, ending. I feel like I've just been... <laughs> we ended know. our top five scary songs with Jedward. Yeah. Maybe fitting. <laughs> Who saw that coming? Uh, I have a couple of honourable mentions, I think. Uh, if I can yeah, just, go and go uh, for check out my list here. Um, I, I was going to say... I was going to say, sorry, a shout out to Black Sabbath. I was nearly going to go with the opening track of their debut album, which is just called uh, Black Sabbath, because I think like that riff just invented that brand of metal and it's still a little bit scary, but overall just a great track. Um, Dave, what were your some of your... Yeah, I guess just, just a few real quick honorable mentions like uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead by Bauhaus is pretty great. Yeah. Um, Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan has been destroyed for me because of its use in Zodiac, of course. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I really like that song, though. It's, it's a great it's song. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Um, I guess Tom Waits, Hell Broke Loose. It's an amazing song, but it's very unsettling. He's got, you know? he's got some great ones. Don't go into that barn. It's brilliant. You should check that out. <laughs> what an incredible name for a song I know um, and obviously like there are many great horror films and many great film scores you mentioned Suspiria It Follows Halloween The Thing Hellraiser The Neon Demon loads loads more um, I'm a, yeah I guess I'm I'm appropriately freaked out but it's mostly the Jedward thing fair play to them they got me somehow they knew I think they knew that we were doing this or something maybe they're just like totally they're everywhere they've got that like um, spooky twin thing going on I guess you can yeah, imagine man. them in those halls in The Shining can't you I am now, and it's it's it's, it's unsettling for sure. Let's leave people right. with that, maybe. Okay, listen, we're all, we're gonna go and have a great Halloween weekend. It's gonna be fun. Like I say, you're gonna have an. Uh, uh, did I get Adam? You're going to have a track-by-track episode with Nilo on Wednesday on your No Encore podcast feed. I hope you enjoy that. Like I say, if you want to help support the show at a busy time in this strange, kooky remote era, it's patreon.com slash noencore, and we would greatly appreciate it. Craig, what are you doing this weekend? Please tell me you're going to watch some horror movies. Yeah, I might actually check out It Follows because I came across that soundtrack Um you know, in the hunt for the top five. And I was really impressed with it and it made me want to check it out. So if it's on your recommendation as well, I think I'll watch that and maybe a few others. But yeah, I think I'm just going to have a weekend of film and relax, hopefully. Delighted. I am absolutely delighted. Fantastic. This episode of No Encore was engineered by spooky Sonic architect Adam Shanahan. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Encore. There will be No Encore. Catch you soon. Bye bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of a Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's a Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8 7 Central, only on PBS. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.